Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Friday, August 28th. We begin with a look at the return to school next week. We speak with psychologist Dr. Tracy Alloway, who offers up some tips and suggestions to make the transition as stress-free as possible for our kids. Continuing our back-to-school conversation, we focus on those students who have chosen the online learning option. We talk with an interior design expert on how to best set your kids up for at-home success. Then we look at the Alberta government's fiscal update, which points to a deficit this year of over $24 billion. We get reaction from Franco Terrazano of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Next, we head stateside for a debrief on the Republican National Convention. We catch up with Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent, with details on President Donald Trump's record-breaking 70-minute speech. And finally, it's a chance to support local while enjoying a new read. We hear details on Canadian Independent Bookstore Day. on the morning news. Uh, The start of the school year is just days away, and many kids are stressed by the unknowns, especially after a long break. What has it been, six months? Mm -hmm. With some tips and tricks for talking to your kids about their worries, we're checking in once again with psychologist, professor, author, and TEDx speaker, Dr. Tracy Alloway. Good morning, Dr. Alloway. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Now, are you hearing from the parents that you deal with and maybe in your community that Kids are scared and and worried about going back next week? That's absolutely a valid concern. Um, I work at a clinic. As a licensed psychologist, I do hear parents often raise the issue that because there's so much uncertainty with this school year, to tackle back-to-school routines, what to expect, everything is very much unknown, both for the children and the parents. Tracy, let's talk about that because, I mean, obviously there's there's some stress for the parents as well. But let's talk about how we as parents can talk to our kids, our grandkids, whatever the case might be, mm-hmm. just to make sure that we are knowing, hearing and listening to what their concerns are. How do we do that? The first tip really as a parent is something that I call avoid pre-purchasing worry for your child. And this idea of pre-purchasing worry is that if we feel worried or anxious and nervous, we may tend to transmit that or ask our children questions along the same way. So we may say, are you worried about going back to school next week? Are you feeling nervous? So we automatically assume that negative emotion when we ask them about how they're feeling about going back to school. So an alternative and a far better way to approach the subject with your child is to say, how are you feeling about school? Um, So keeping it open-ended instead of directing it specifically, using those words of worry and nervousness when they ask them about it. Makes sense. One of the things you mentioned is talking about any worry or stress kind of as a wave. Tell us about that and how that works. Yes, I think this is such a useful image because really we often think of stress when we're in the moment as almost never ending, (laughs) that you you can't see that end in sight. But if you imagine stress as a wave that you know it's going to, you know, to come down and you're not always at the peak the whole time, it's much easier to manage that rather than thinking of this constant, you know, burning. And it's important to teach your child how to be aware to calibrate their own stress levels. So, for example, something that may be stressful for me at a five and a 10 point scale, maybe just a two for someone else. And so again, as a parent, it's important to to teach the child questions to ask themselves, how stressful really is this for me? Maybe it's a two for me, but I'm just hearing everyone else talk about it. And so I think it's a five, but it actually really isn't. So it's important to 
to start developing that self-awareness about their own wave levels, if you will. And, you know, as you talk about that, it makes me think my 13-year-old right now now is she wants to be heard, right? And I think that's the thing is if we just open up those communication lines and give them a few tools, they just want to know that we're hearing them, not that we're telling them how they should think or how they likely feel. Exactly. See, when I, I really like that you use that um, example too, because that goes back to when we were talking about pre-purchasing worrying. When we do that, we're essentially cutting out what they're feeling and telling them what we're feeling and that they should feel the same way too. So we're, we're stopping that communication rather than keeping it open like you just mentioned. Dr. Holloway, you know, uh, you've uh, covered the communication part, but and this might sound very simplistic, but a lot of us might have trouble communicating with our particularly preteen or teen just because they have so much mm-hmm. on the go. So what's the best setting to have these serious conversations with our schoolers? Yeah, oftentimes it's a very relaxed setting, and I would say the same is true even for your, you know, your six-year-old going to kindergarten or your, your eight-year-old and your teens. Do, put it in an activity that is just low-key. Maybe as you're, you know, if you do cook dinner together as a family, do it over that. If you're, you know, if you do puzzles as a family, you play little games, do it in that very relaxed setting. And the important thing as you have that conversation is to help them build that toolkit, like we mentioned earlier. So ask them, what is in your control that you can manage? So maybe it's not in their control, you know, that they don't know different aspects about the school schedule and so on. That is not in their control. But what can they manage? And shifting the focus to helping them recognize the parts that they can keep in mind, that they can control, and and focusing on that and shifting the focus away from the unknown that is not within their their, uh, sphere of control. Tracy, is there a right or a wrong way to, to approach or a place to approach, as Andy was talking about? Like, you know, we'll do that usually as the kids are getting ready for bed, kind of lie on the bed with them, talk to them about, mm-hmm. you know, what they're, if, if there's something that's bothering them or how they're feeling or how was their day kind of thing. Is that right or wrong or is it just dependent on the family and the kids themselves? I think in this case, there's, you know, as a parent, you know your child best. So the, the, the context, as long as it's approached in, a, in an open manner, it's more the manner in which you approach the conversation rather than the context. So you know when your child is feeling most relaxed. And, and as a parent, as you mentioned, you know, whether that's the bedtime routine or maybe you have an afternoon or morning routine, you know that with your child and your family. It's really more the manner in which you choose to approach that. And also to, to look for warning signs, both for, for teens and for younger children. They may not express their worry or their anxiety in words but you may notice uh you know clues in how they use their body language are they more self-soothing behaviors are they becoming a little bit more withdrawn as we're we're getting a little close to the run-up to school starting next week are they wanting just to stay in their room a bit more isolating a little bit more things that may be unusual patterns for your child just as a parent be attentive to those early signs because that may be your child's way of communicating that they are feeling nervous and anxious and they just don't have the right words to explain that to you. Dr. Alloway, you know, as adults, we know the importance of uh, social distancing, mask wearing and, you know, not Mm -hmm. handing out hugs, but it's uh, counterintuitive (laughs) to these kids who haven't seen their friends for six months. So how do we get a serious message that could, you know, impact their health uh, really across to the younger set? And that's a great question. And I think if you frame it in the context that this new normal is the same way in which we wear seatbelts. We look both ways when we cross the, uh, the street. So these are just ways that keep us safe and ways that we now follow. We don't think twice about putting on a seatbelt. We don't bulk at that. And so we just want to encourage them to view it in the same manner that you know, us not giving hugs or us keeping masks on and so on are just 
ways of keeping our seatbelt on, they're keeping each other safe, and also just let them know that, unfortunately, the, the result of that is that if, if you know, they, with contact tracing, if they do find that they've been in contact with someone who tests positive, then it's going to result in them being quarantined, which means that they can't see their friends for a set amount of time. So in other words, it, it should hopefully, first of all, normalize this behavior as something that we do really, like wearing seatbelts and so on, but also helps them understand that they, you know, incentivize them to, uh, to avoid any potential negative consequences like not being able to see their peers. Uh, so much great information. Thank you so much. We're going to point people to your website. And I wanted to just quickly mention before we let you go, you had also uh, said, you know, give your kids an experience where they can be in control because they kind of feel a lack yes. of it. So reading, mm-hmm. playing with their pets, drawing, uh, mindfulness yes. apps or writing. I think those are great ideas. Thank you so much for everything, yep. Tracy, this morning. Thanks so much for having me, Sue and Andy. Appreciate it. It's Dr. Tracy Alloway, psychologist. And you can go to tracyalloway.com for more information. 617, it's helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Enjoy established amenities, recreation facilities, and the leading school districts. Crowchild Trail off to a fantastic start this morning. Ten-minute drive southbound from Stony Trail towards the river. Heading off of Crowchild onto Memorial Boat Trail, 17th Avenue. All great options out towards 14th Street. There are continued right lane closures, though, in both directions of 17th Avenue between 14th Street and McLeod Trail. That's to help with physical distancing on the sidewalks. But otherwise, uh, 14th Street, Center Street, Edmonton Trail, even if you're coming through uh, Inglewood on 9th Avenue, that's a great drive this morning. The Lotto Max jackpot is $50 million plus an estimated two max millions. $50 million plus two max millions. Dream to the max with Lotto Max. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. Six nineteen on your Friday morning. Annabelle Mustalik, owner of design firm ADM Interiors, has taken her medical background and melded it with design to come up with some great ideas for creating the best at-home workspace for kids, especially thousands of kids here in Alberta who are homeschooling this year. Good morning, Annabelle. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we've got a lot of kids homeschooling, but even if you're not homeschooling, you still need a great space at home to do your homework. So you've got ideas. How do we set kids up to be as successful as possible this year? Yes, you betcha. Well, I've got um, quite a few tips here to kind of give people an idea on how to get their home space set up for their children. And the first thing is to get them set up in a suitable location. And depending on their age, you know, if you've got somebody that's younger, you want to have them set up in a space that's probably close to your workspace so that you can keep an eye on them Mm -hmm. and not have to get up from your desk to go and help them. So Mm -hmm. setting them up as close to you as possible. And for teens, you know, getting them set up somewhere where it's quiet, somewhere where there aren't a lot of distractions, not a whole lot of noise, you know, they're going to be on screens. You want to make sure that you can also keep an eye on them, but at the same time, give them some privacy, give them some quiet time. Uh, Also, well, one of the points that you highlight, you know, is uh, talking about having them in a space they like. You know, I guess, you know, if it's considered a chore and they don't want to be there, it'll be that much uh, more of an uphill battle. Yes. And, you know, I think getting the kids involved with creating that space for themselves, you know, they're going to be homeschooling getting the young ones involved and getting some decor um, input from from them, you know, getting them to tell you 
what colors they want to see in their space, what posters maybe they want to get put up. Getting some input from them will make them want to sit there. Very true. And yeah, since you mentioned the homeschooling side of things, you, you, I know that one of your things too is to sort of mimic what it would be like if they were at school a little bit. Yes, that's right. So as much as possible, trying to create zones within the home that uh, they would have had in the school setting to give them some familiarity that way, um, get them used to the routine. Uh, so, you know, having a functional zone where um, they've maybe got a whiteboard set up so that they have the agenda written down on the whiteboard. They know what's going to happen for the day, similarly to what they would have in school. Makes sense. Maybe also making sure that they have those things uh, ready for a break so they can take that break and not be bored uh, close at hand, I would think. Yes, that's right. And, you know, um, as far as the breaks go and maybe having a basket of, of toys, some of their favorite things, maybe, you know, gives them a break from schoolwork. Um, their little stress balls and things like yeah. that. Yeah, that's right. You betcha. Makes sense. So really, it's just it's about, you know, giving them a, a, a serious space to work, but one that is comfortable for them. It's great tips. We thank you for your time this morning. Yeah, you betcha. Thank you for having me. That's Annabelle Mastalik. She is the former nurse and the owner of design firm ADM Interiors at adm-interiors.ca. A release yesterday from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation calling on the Alberta government to tackle its spending problem in response to the dire fiscal update. Joining us with details is Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the Alberta director. Hi, Franco. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me on this morning. Shocking number released yesterday. Alberta's deficit forecast at $24.2 billion. Were you surprised by that number? You know, we knew it was going to be bad, but I think that's even a little bit worse than what I was expecting. And that's that's $24 billion deficit. That's the largest deficit we've had in our province's history. And just as shocking as the deficit is the debt. So we're going to be looking at $100 billion of debt by the end of the year. And if I can break that down for what that means for each Albertan, that's more than $22,000 that each Albertan will owe in provincial government debt. Now, that was bad news, um, but this has to be a wake-up call for, for any politician who's still left in Alberta or for any interest group in Alberta that still thinks that we can rack up more charges on the taxpayer credit card. Well, I want to be specific here. You know, not $100 billion, but $99.6 <laughs> no, yeah. it's, it's huge. Uh, let's talk about, you know, what does the uh, CTF uh, think could be done? Because I know that when it comes to your household economy, people say if you want to have some savings, it's not necessarily income, but how you spend. So so where can we be looking? Well, that's that's absolutely what we're looking at. We're looking at spending. And, and one of the things that we have to remember is that for, for years, not months, but for years, families and businesses have been tightening their belts. We've been doing the best that we can to, to, to do more with less, but we haven't seen the provincial government um, do that as well. We, we've seen spending continue to increase even during the downturn, and, and that's why the Blue Ribbon Panel on Alberta's Finances, Kenny's panel of experts last year released a report, and it showed that we would spend 10 billion dollars less every single year if we just brought our provincial government spending in line with other provinces and that's why we need to tackle the spending problem it's not fair to make struggling albertans continue to pay or overpay for a high cost provincial government it's not going to be a quick fix franco we're in deep right now we've been talking about a little bit in the last hour what are your thoughts on a provincial sales tax to try and make that money back 
Well, we're absolutely against um, a provincial sales tax for, for a few different reasons. So, so one, we've, we've had so many Albertans who have lost their job. And again, not just in a few months, but over the last five years. Uh, so many Albertans throughout this whole downturn have been under, underemployed, have, if they haven't lost their job, they've taken pay cuts. Um, you know, to be frank, families, businesses can afford higher taxes. Now, I will say there is one silver lining, I think, amidst all of this red ink, and that's our political leaders understand that tax hikes is not the right time. Um, we've heard Premier Jason Kenney say he couldn't think of a dumber thing to do right now than to raise taxes. And you know what? There's actually something Premier Kenney and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau agree on, because Justin Trudeau has also said that the feds aren't going to be raising taxes. And if you want to deal with the revenue, you have to get the economy going again. And you're not going to get the economy going again by taking billions of dollars out of families and businesses for higher taxes. Yeah, but still, you know, you, you say you quit the overspending to the tune of $24.2 billion. You, you, that's possible within, within a number of years? Well, you certainly have to act fast. Um, the faster you act, the better. We're already losing billions of dollars, not just through the debt, but also through interest payments. So the faster we act, the better. But you can't be raising taxes on struggling families and struggling businesses when you have a massive overspending problem. You have to fix the spending problem first. You have to. So if you had a magic wand, first places you'd pull back and, and save on spending. Well, there's a few different places. First, you got to do the little things right. You got to keep the expenses under control, political staffers, uh, politicians themselves. Number two, you have to go after the corporate welfare, uh, the business subsidies, the loans, the loan guarantees. We've heard Kenny rightly say that you got to get government out of the losing business of business, right? Let the market decide. Um, number three, you're not going to balance the budget unless you address the cost elephant in the room, and that's government labor. That makes up more than half of the operating budget. There's just no way around it. And finally, I'll have to say, you have to take a macro approach, and every single area of the budget should be able to find savings when we're overspending by $10 billion every year. You mentioned that the per-person spending is much higher than our counterparts. Which province should we be looking at as a model? I know they're they're outstripping us, but is there one province you think we should adapt that to and try to emulate? Well... When I say the $10 billion, now that means we're overspending compared to British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec. So obviously that's probably the goal, but the best province that we should get closer to um, will, would probably be BC. I mean, they're, they're another large province. We're about the same when it comes to population, and we're close when it comes to demographics as well. Um, and the big area that we're going to have to see cuts to, it's going to have to be labour. It really is. And not only is it needed, but it's warranted. I mean, for so many years, um, families, businesses have been struggling, taking pay cuts, taking job losses, um, while we've seen government compensation costs balloon. It's a massive number. We'll be watching to see what the province decides to do about it. Thank you for your time this morning, Franco. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. That's Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And let's continue the conversation. We've got texts in about, you know, what do you think? Is, is a provincial sales tax the, tax the answer? Franco says no. Um, yeah. ha, what do you think? Text line's open for you, 403-974-8255. And, you know, Franco said that, you know, Premier Kenny said we don't want to tax individual Albertans. We don't want to raise or increase during this time. And I get that, uh, but I'm, I'm of the same school of thought as Danielle when she said if there's some caveats to do with the PST, mm-hmm. whether or not it's okay, we, we take our uh, energy uh, you know, uh, revenue and put that in account, whether it's that or you say, okay, we're going to go 3% PST uh, for six years, okay, there's uh, $18 billion, okay, 
And after that, we, we legislate that it has to be shut down. The tax line, I know people are going to say, oh, they'll never remove yeah, a tax. Yeah, the tax is there, it's always there, you know, right? If we, and, then, and then we can revisit it. Because I don't think this is going to be a year or two. And as I said to Franco, you know, do you really think with cuts, yeah. you know, we can get there? Because $24 billion? $24 billion is huge. And Danielle said there is perhaps light at the end of the tunnel with the pipelines and the, the progress we're making. And that's great. Let's hope so. But those are all what ifs, right? But we have to do something sooner rather than later. And, and to implement a tax, uh, like Franco said, you know, these the percentage rates, these, these are loans. The bottom line is these are loans just like your credit card. You don't pay that bill, you're going to get dinged. So maybe the PST, I'm, uh, for the first time in my life as an Albertan, I'm on board with the PST. Interesting. Let's see what the texters say. Uh, this texter saying everyone is talking about consumption taxes as well as income tax. How about eliminate income tax, implement a consumption tax on everything, and let us decide what we will spend our earnings on. Necessities should be taxed lower than extravagances. So people do have opinions. Uh, what's your opinion? Is it time ah, to put a PST in the province of Alberta. 403-974-8255. Send us a text. It's 917. Helicopter traffic time for West District by Truman. Life happens at hellowestdistrict.com. New collision up in the northwest. This one's impacting southbound Stony Trail approaching 16th Avenue. It's in your right lane. We're already seeing backups towards scenic acres in Tuscany. Uh, once you get past that collision, there is also construction on the exit ramp to eastbound 16th Avenue. There's a metal plate on the roadway. A lot of drivers are slowing down for that, and they do have periodic full closures as well as construction crews cross the roadway. So that'll add a, a further two minutes to your drive. If you can, Bonus is, uh, is a great alternate route. Bonus Road all the way down to Beaufort Road. That'll save yourself some time. Otherwise, though, Deerfoot Trail is moving fine through both the northeast and southeast. A nice wind down after the morning commute. And if you're traveling through the southwest, construction is going to slow you down on westbound 162nd Avenue approaching James McHavitt Road. There's a left lane closure until the afternoon. It's the Rediscover the Road sales event at Nissan. Get up to 5,000 cash purchase bonus on select 2020 Murano models. Visit choosenissan.ca. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard. Well, it's been a controversial topic since this UCP government announced it would do it, and it continues. Grace Wark from the Alberta Wilderness Association is joining us now to discuss how 85 sites in Alberta will lose their protected status once the provincial government re removes them from the park system. Good morning, Grace. Good morning, Sue. How are you today? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Boy, there were a lot of people that spoke out about this, and it looks like it is moving forward. What does this mean with the government removing sites from the provincial park system? Hmm. So what the government's proposal is, is to actually remove a total of 164 sites from across the province. The 85 sites that are losing protection are actually from Alberta's most endangered and least protected natural regions. Those are the parklands, the grasslands, and the foothills. And why we're considering that they're, they're losing this protection is because they're going out of the Alberta park system and either being transferred over to third-party partnerships or uh, what they're calling alternate management approaches, which will be under the province's lands division. So either way, they're, they're losing this important framework that's in place to both provide accessible recreation opportunities for Albertans and also to protect things like local ecosystems and species at risk. Grace, how does it work in other provinces? How do we compare when it comes to provincially, uh, you know, uh, under the provincial umbrella and not uh, compared to the other provinces? That's a very good question. So provincially, actually before this decision, Alberta was doing really well for the amount of protection that we had. There are, um, you know, 
targets that the different provinces are trying to meet in terms of how much of our land base can we protect. And Alberta uh, has been working up to 17% protection um, of our lands through things like provincial parks and national parks. And our national parks here in the mountains actually contribute a lot to those targets. Um, so up until now, yeah, Alberta's been, been doing pretty okay. But seeing as we're now starting to remove those protections and peel them back, uh, we might not be competing as well with the other provinces in the years to come. Grace, does it seem like this is just sort of a cost-saving measure? And what will the result be, uh, do you feel, is your concern, really, as you look forward with these being removed? Mm. So it does really look like a, a cost-saving measure for this government. They're saving $5 million out of a multi-billion dollar budget. Um, but I think that we really need to reframe how we're looking at this park system. The government's saying this is a financially struggling system, but the way we see it is as a investment into the health and well-being of Albertans. As I said, the parks are there for us to get out and be healthy, and they can also protect our ecosystems and be a financial stimulant as well during times that are tough. You'll talk to any outdoor retail right now and they're they're selling out of all their stock because Albertans are you know hitting the slopes getting out on the mountains and making sure that they get outside as a safe way of recreating during COVID-19. Your organization obviously in the battle for this is important to you but I would think that yes those users you've got to get their attention so so what can people do if they're hearing your voice and are knowledgeable what's happening to to, to try to steer things in in the right direction? Absolutely. So if, if you've heard about this, if you care about these park sites, and if you relate to some of them personally, what you can do is you can send a letter to uh, the Minister of Environment and Parks, Jason Nixon, as well as to your local MLA, just to let them know what you think about this decision, if you think these protections are important. Um, and yeah, you can find more information on our website at albertawilderness.ca. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time, Grace. Thanks so much. That's Grace Warwick, Alberta Wilderness Association. Again, albertawilderness.ca, as she mentioned. Sue DL, Andrew Schultz with you here on the morning news on your Friday morning. Just want to give you a heads up coming up at 8.09. Really interesting conversation with sports economist Moshe Lander talking about boycotting protests by NBA players and other leagues in support of the Black Lives Matter, the business of sports at 8.09. But coming up in just a couple of minutes, we're going to talk to Global's Reggie Cicchini about this week's headlines south of the border, focusing on the wrap of the Republican National Convention. That's next. Time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Main streets highlight 20 foot sidewalks and integrated bike paths. Crowtail Trail southbound lane still sitting at about 10 minutes from Stony Trail down to the river. It's a great drive on Crowtail this morning. Memorial Boat Trail and 17th Avenue coming off of Crowtail east towards the downtown core. All sitting delay free. There are continued lane closures though on 17th Avenue between 14th Street and McLeod Trail to help out with physical distancing on the sidewalks. Just be aware of that. You're also still going to find a northbound right lane closure on Elbow Drive as you approach the Mission area and 4th Street Southwest to help out with physical distancing on that pathway. Uh, but volume-wise, heading into downtown Edmonton Trail, Center Street, 9th Avenue through Inglewood, all still moving okay. We're also still seeing a nice drive on 14th Street as you come out of the far northwest. It's 15 minutes from Country Hills Boulevard down into the Beltline. The Love You by Shoppers Drug Mart program is committed to advancing women's health. Visit shoppersdrugmart.ca slash love you to learn more. Up in the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard. On the boats and on the planes, they come into America.
7.09 on the morning news. Uh, demonstrators gathered near the White House last night uh, trying to drown out uh, President Donald Trump's speech accepting the Republican presidential nomination. Joining us with a wrap of the RNC is Reggie Cicchini, Global's uh, Washington correspondent. Good morning to you, Reggie. Good morning. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. Let's start at the top, and that was the introduction uh, by uh, Trump's daughter, Ivanka Trump. And uh, what was most interesting, the honesty in how she described her dad. Yeah, I mean, look, this was an attempt to try and show that Donald Trump does have a side that most people don't get to see trying to paint him not only as somebody who can be tough to work with, tough to listen to, but also is simply just somebody, uh, you know, that, that, that Americans really should be able to line up behind. This was really that softer side message that some Republicans have been pushing earlier this week, but also that tougher side message uh, that is trying to energize that base, but also bring in people who may be weary about someone like Joe Biden. You know, it really it was over an hour long speech by Donald Trump as he accepted the nomination and he was the law and order president stayed totally on target with his talk last night didn't he 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 did I mean look 70 minutes for an acceptance speech is the longest in history especially in an area like the White House which is not supposed to be political and this law and order message that the president pushes really is kind of contradictory because he's talking about law and order to deal with the crisis happening on American streets but that crisis is happening on American streets under the president's watch as he tries to blame that on Democrats. It really was a mixed bag of messaging here aimed at not only kind of confusing America to to make it feel like that this really is the Democratic problem, but really to get that base energized. That's all this was over the last week was to ensure that some of that base that's been flaking away gets back in line and stands behind Donald Trump. Let's talk about the ethical portion of holding such an event at the White House. And in fact, former chief of the Office of Government of Ethics, uh, Walter Schaub, had a quote. Uh, you, you could see it online. This uh, abomination may be the most visible misuse of official position for private gain in America's history. So it sounds like, you know, it, it's a no-no. But is this just a slap in the wrist? Is this just frowned upon? Like, it sounds like nothing was going to stop this from happening. Yeah, I mean, look, it really was a sight to see the White House decked out in Trump-Pence attire with 1,500 people not socially distanced on the lawn watching the president give what a, what what was essentially a campaign speech. Uh, and, and look, the Hatch Act is there, and it has been there for decades, and this administration has uh, consistently violated the Hatch Act. Now, it is worth pointing out the Hatch Act for making sure that you're not actively politicking uh, in a government office does not apply directly to the president, but it does apply to the president's aides and people in the the administration who took part in this event all week long uh, and there are fears now that this is going to erode kind of the, the rules and laws that are in place in administrations to come but it's also worth pointing out here that administration officials are not saying we didn't go against the hatch act they're simply saying they don't care that they violated it have there ever been protesters at a, a candidate accepting their nomination during a speech and and i've got to say too when even fox news who donald trump and fox news clearly have a relationship when fox is unimportant impressed and didn't really like the speech that says something yeah i mean look protests happen outside of speeches all the time and at every convention when we were at uh, joe biden's convention in delaware last week there were still uh pro-trump people standing outside of the convention center it's not something that's unheard of what's different this year is that it's not simply going against the president's acceptance there are a series of crises happening in this country whether it has to do with racial tensions whether it has to do with the coronavirus pandemic that's what there were protests outside you know when i was standing at the white house last Last night, there were signs, not just anti-Trump. It was Black Lives Matter. It was talking about doctors. It was talking about the economy. There are people that are angry at the, at the president's response, uh, not just over the last eight months, but over the last three and a half years. I'm wondering, you know, uh, from the clips that I've seen from the texts uh, that I've read on uh, these 
uh, the, this rally last night in the final speech. I heard unrest and, and tension at times, but still not the mention of the name Jacob Blake, for example. Has, uh, that, was that mentioned whatsoever, and has uh, Donald Trump mentioned that in his uh, uh, Twitter uh, uh, rantings, if you will, over the past couple of days? No, look, last night, it, the advisor said the president may talk about it, but the only time the president mentioned Kenosha, Wisconsin, was to talk about violence, looting, and rioting on the streets of Wisconsin, and then parlayed that into the broader issue of protests taking uh, uh, place around the country, which have been happening now since the death of George Floyd. And what the president did was decry that as uh, as radicals that have uh, democratic leanings, uh, and that that is what's going to continue if Joe Biden is elected. That was that move and push to try and pull in suburban and women voters into making them think that the suburbs are going to fall into chaos if Democrats are elected. And what it does is whitewashes and glosses over the systemic problems in this country that have led to these protests. And that's where some of those protests were for uh, were outside of the White House last night. The president stayed true to his message from the past four years. Does this move the needle at all as we look uh, and still see Joe Biden ahead in polling? It really is hard to see how anybody who hadn't made up their mind may have just decided to switch their opinion based on the speech last night and based on this entire campaign. Again, it was geared towards that 35% that have been following Donald Trump from the beginning. But also remember, the party didn't lay out any policy platform during this convention. So the president is now trying to defend a record by saying that I don't need to do anything else because what I've done is already good enough, despite the fact we're seeing all of the crises play out across America. So it, 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 it'll be, you know, one of those potential uh, you know, silent majorities that comes out to possibly reelect him in November. Uh, but right now, you know, polls are showing that Joe Biden remains in that lead by as much as 10 points. And there are now 67 days for both of these men to try and make their case that they are the ones that need to lead America into the next era. Uh, hearing when we talk about the, the coronavirus in the U.S. that uh, newly diagnosed cases are starting to decline a bit. And I'm wondering, is this due to mask use or is testing where it belongs at this point? It's a combination of two. More people are wearing masks, but there are fewer tests that are taking place. And look, just a couple of days ago, the CDC had changed things around and rejigged their criteria to say that if you were asymptomatic or had been near somebody who had symptoms, you didn't need to get a test. That's now been reversed, but it goes to show that there has been politicization that has tried to fudge some of the numbers in the U.S. And, you know, we get feedback and criticism and anger from people on Twitter saying that we're lying about the numbers. But at the end of the day, politics is playing a role here and the numbers you see are not the numbers that you should take at face value uh, numbers are continuing to be at catastrophic levels in this country and when the president last night said that the country has the lowest fatality rate uh, anywhere on earth it simply was a lie the united states is in the top third of countries that are still impacted by this virus well it's biden versus trump it's official the conventions both of them have been completed we'll continue to check in with you reggie as we move towards election day which is again when is it officially <laughs> November 3rd, and it's worth pointing out we are one month and one day away from the first debate between Trump and Biden in Cleveland. Wow, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini. He is our uh, Global News Washington correspondent. And interesting uh, yes. uh, results coming from a history professor who who's called a bunch of elections in the past. Alan Lichtman, who has been uh, following them since Ronald Reagan's uh, you know election back in 1984, has a 13 keys system, things that he inputs. 
So he is predicting at this point that, uh, you know, Biden will take the victory here. So it's interesting to see. This is a, according to an article from CNN, like he uh, is a legit professor. He has done correctly predicted 36 years. since 1984. That's amazing. Yeah. So. Every time he's been right so far, will it continue? Will his uh, will his role continue? He's saying it'll be Biden all the way on this, this one. We'll know late November 3rd or early November 4th mm-hmm. if that's the case. Uh, 717, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Calgary's last and best master plan community inside the Stony Trail Ring Road. now and tomorrow August 29th book lovers and independent bookstores across Canada are going to be celebrating the annual Canadian Independent Bookstore Day it's a day for all of us to get out and celebrate independent bookstores in our communities and joining us to discuss it is Christy Weisgerber who is with Owl's Nest Books here in Calgary hi Christy hi thanks so much for joining us so what have you got planned for Canadian Independent Bookstore Day so uh, this year we weren't quite sure how it was going to play out, so we're thrilled to be able to do anything at all. Uh, so this year what we're going to be doing is offering a special buy one, get one, 20% off all of our most recent staff picks, uh, featured staff picks from this last year. We have them all on display. We're going to have them up on our website. So And you can log in or you can come in store and get some great deals. Obviously we know the name Owl's Nest Books. And, uh, you know, few and far between when you find bookstores in a city of the size of Calgary or any city for that matter these days. So I'm wondering, you've had success. What is it uh, that uh, makes a successful bookstore in 2020? In this climate right now, it's definitely our community. Uh, The people have been so amazing. They've been coming out. They've been buying from us. They've been supporting us like crazy. And we just love them to bits because without them, we would not be here. There aren't very many, as Andrew said. We don't have a lot of independents left. So do you get a lot of support for that very reason, though? Um, some of it's due to independent, uh, because we're independent. Um, there's been a big push for people sort of realizing Amazon's not all that great, despite their cheap prices and the fast delivery. Um, a lot of it, though, too, is the personal experience and the one-on-one customer service. Mm-hmm. When you come in and you talk to us, you know we're book lovers. You know we're going to try and sell you books we have read. We know what they are. We know you're going to love them. Any changes uh, due to the pandemic going to be moving uh, post-pandemic? And I'm thinking about, like, for example, the curbside pickup or increased delivery. Is that something that Owl's Nest is going to consider? We are still doing it. Uh, we we started doing uh, contactless curbside and uh, delivery in the city uh, when everything was locked down and we couldn't have anyone in the store. We've continued it since we were able to reopen, and we have no plans at this time to stop. 
So uh, whether you want to come in or if you want to give us a call or you want to go online to our website, we are going to make it as easy as possible to get you your books. Love it. Owl's Nest Books in the Britannia Shopping Plaza just off Elbow Drive in the Southwest. Thanks so much for joining us, Christy. Have a great Canadian Independent Bookstore Day tomorrow. Thank you. That's Christy Weisgerber from Owl's Nest, and you can go online at owlsnestbooks.com.